We're in Nehemiah chapter 3. Nehemiah chapter 3, if you're watching online or you're visiting with us this morning, we're just walking through the book of Nehemiah together. And today we find ourselves in the third chapter of Nehemiah. Nehemiah chapter 3. And would you do me a favor? Uh, Would you just help me thank our music ministry? Man, what a great job they are doing. Uh, I am so impressed with uh, uh, the choir and the band and even having Miss Louise read uh, from home. What a just a special treat. So wonderful job. Thankful for uh, Micah and his leadership there. And uh, guys, I'm going to stay here. If y'all want to go there, that's fine. Y'all doing okay this morning? Good, good, good. I know your parents. I'll see them after the service. Don't worry, don't worry. Nehemiah chapter 3, Nehemiah chapter 3, you know, a Christian, a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ is one who by faith has come to Jesus as Savior and Lord. By faith, they have understood the word of scripture that says all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, Romans 3.23. By faith, they understand that the wages of sin is death, Romans 6.23. By faith, they understand that yet while we were still sinners, Christ died for us, Romans 5 and 8. By faith, they understand Romans 10, 9 and 10, that if you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that Christ came and died and was buried according to the scripture and rose again on the third day, you can be saved. By faith, a Christian is one who understands Romans 10, 13, for whosoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. By faith, a Christian is one who has understood that they are in sin and separated from God. And that there's no way for a person to get back to God left to themselves. That in our sin and in our separation, because of the fallenness of our nature, by faith we understand that we need someone to step in. By faith we understand that is Jesus. Jesus, the only Son of God, born of a virgin. Jesus who came and lived and took on flesh. God in the flesh, the God-man who lived perfectly, who kept all of the laws of the Bible, who never broke fellowship with God through sin like we do. By faith we believe that Jesus, Jesus went to the cross and carried our sin, having the curse laid on Him. By faith, we understand the account of the historical Jesus that He really did die on a real tree, on a real hill in Jerusalem. By faith, we understand that the wrath of God was poured out on Him for sin. By faith, we believe that He was laid in a tomb, a real tomb, a real grave, a real place, a real location, a real death. By faith. We know that on that third day, the tomb could not hold him. We know on that third day, the grave could not keep its clutches on his ankles. We know on that third day, blood began to course through his veins. Air began to fill his lungs. And bursting forth from that tomb, he declared, I live and you shall live also. By faith, we follow Jesus because he has saved us. But what most Christians maybe don't understand or don't fully grasp or don't find the beauty of is that by faith we're saved from our sins into a relationship with Christ, but we're also saved into a family. We're saved into a body that belongs together. We're woven now into the kingdom of God. We are saved not just from our sin and slavery to Jesus. We are saved from our sin and slavery to Jesus and His family. We are saved into a community. We are saved into a kingdom. We are saved into a place where we gather with others who have found this Savior. 
and we follow him. In Nehemiah chapter 3, we find one of the most beautiful pictures of the people of God living together for the glory of God. We find in Nehemiah chapter 3, one of the most beautiful pictures in all of history where the people of God who have set their heart's affection and their mind's attention on the Lord and His goodness, working and pulling and finding themselves together in the family of God. What we find in Nehemiah chapter 3 is when God's people get serious about God's glory and loving one another and serving together. In fact, if you have your Bible open there in Nehemiah chapter 3, here's what you'll read. You'll read a list of seemingly forgotten names that no one knows how to pronounce correctly. I'm going to spare you butchering them. I'm not going to read all 21, 30 verses to you. That's not going to happen today. You're not going to get to giggle at me, butcher Old Testament names. But if you were to take your eyes and just scan down it, here's what you'll see. You'll see a list of names that none of us really knows. Names we don't recognize or have a hold of. Names in history that have gone past. You'll see, if you read Nehemiah chapter 3, that it's about the rebuilding of the wall. And in fact, Nehemiah 3 is how it took place. It'll tell you about 41 plus sections of the wall. It'll tell you about 10 gates that were built. And from gate to gate, the different people had different sections to do their part. So over this course of time, there's over 35 names and unknown people listed in this text. They come from all walks of life, and in Nehemiah chapter 3, they band together to build the wall of Jerusalem, to bring back the glory of God to the nations through the city of Zion. They work together. In Nehemiah 3, you will see the people of God striving together for the glory of of God. I, I want to read to you the first five verses, and that way you'll just get an appetite of what you would hear if I kept going. But you know that I have such a mastery of the English language that it would be uh, quite entertaining to watch me read all of this chapter. Look with me at Nehemiah chapter 3. Let me read to you the first five verses. And just remember this, however I say it is correct. <laughs> then Elishab, the high priest, rose up with his brothers, the priest, and built the sheep gate. They consecrated it and set its doors. They consecrated as far as the Tower of Hundred and as far as the Tower of Hanel. And next to him were the, son, the men of Jericho built. And next to them was Zakar, the son of Imar, who built. The sons of Hasniah built the fish gate. They laid its beams and set its doors, its bolts and its bars. And next to them, Mermoth, the son of Uriah, the son of Hakaz, repaired. And next to them, Meshillam, and the son of Berkiah, son of Meshazel, repaired. And next to them, Zadak, the son of Banah, repaired. Next to them, the Tekoites repaired. But their nobles did not stoop to serve the Lord. Now, if we kept reading, that's what you would hear over and over and over. A gate, a section, a people. Would you pray with me? Father, help us now as we see from this uh, passage what it looks like for the people of God who've been saved to follow Christ to serve together, to live together, to work together, to have in their mind a heart for the glory of your kingdom. Father, we may read this chapter and giggle and laugh at names we can't pronounce in history that's thousands of years old. But Father, remind us, this is your holy word. Every name listed in this chapter is because you divinely sought that it would be recorded. Every part of the gates and the forming 
Every word, every letter is divinely inspired by you, led by men of God to write down. God, this is not a chapter that we skip and keep going. It is not a chapter that we glance over and think it's not important. It is your word. And from your living and active word, we grow, we learn, we are convicted and changed. God, help us as we see this seemingly record of history. Father, help us. I I pray you'll help me as I try to explain this and expound on it, but, but help us to see that a bunch of people a long time ago building a wall and recorded in Scripture is good for us today. Help us, Lord, see your living and active word today. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the idioms, one of the phrases that has made it into our common vernacular is all hands on deck. It comes from an old sailing term when sailors and uh, shipmates would have to pull ropes and move sails and watch their udder or the rudder, not the udder, that's milking a cow, watch the (laughs) rudder and had the steering wheel along. Maybe they had cows on the ship, I don't know. Uh, But all hands on deck was a call for everyone to pull their weight, to do their part. In Nehemiah chapter 3, we literally have an all hands on deck moment in the nation of Israel. Let me just remind you where we are. The nation of Israel has been conquered by the Babylonians, which became the Persians, and they've been dispersed, and Israel's been burned to the ground. The the wall is not there. The gates are not there. The city is a laughingstock for all who pass by. Nehemiah is serving in the Persians' king court. He hears word that his hometown wall has not been built, that the city of Jerusalem is in dismay. He, he hears word that it's not going well. They have a temple built by Ezra's leadership, but they don't have a wall. And a wall meant protection, a wall meant security, a wall meant economy, a wall meant identity. But more than anything to the nation of Israel, Jerusalem meant the glory of God. That the people of God would know that their king was on the throne and that the gospel would go forth from there. The good news of the one God who saves people. So the wall was important for the nation of Israel. Brothers and sisters, it would be through this wall that Jesus would walk to Calvary. This wall was important. It was necessary to the plan of God. And so Nehemiah begins to pray and seek. Remember I told you last week as we looked at chapter 2 that between chapter 1 and chapter 2 there is four months of Nehemiah praying and fasting, hoping for the Lord to move. Finally he goes to the king of Persia and says, I I really wish you'd give me permission to go home to my homeland and, and build back their walls and help them. The king blesses him. The king gives him what he needs. The king gives him an escort and an army to follow him. The king gives him permission to pass through other people's land. The king gives him permission to go into the forest and get timber. The king is with him. God has stirred a pagan king to build back the walls of Jerusalem. Let that be a reminder to us. When God's plan is moving, nothing will stop it. He will bend the hearts of pagans for his plan. God's plans are not moved by others. God is on the throne. So they go back. Nehemiah, at the end of chapter 2, surveys the damage of the wall. It's bad. At one place in chapter 2, it says it's so bad that his horse can't even pass through. The, the rubble has fallen. It's a, it's a bad predicament. He pulls the people together at the end of chapter 2, and he says, let's do this. Let's do this for the Lord. And then in chapter 3, we literally have the logistical plan of how they did it. How did they build this wall? Well, all hands were on deck. Everybody pitched in. They built this wall because everybody did their part. And I believe there are two truths from this chapter that will help us as we think about doing our part for the kingdom of God. How were they so successful? 
Do you know they completed this entire wall in 52 days? In 52 days, according to chapter 6, they completed the entire project in 52 days. Less than two months, they built this entire wall around the city of Jerusalem. A wall in which they did not have forklifts and boom trucks and cranes and concrete trucks. They did not have prefab steel outlines to lay down. This was men and women serving together for the work of the Lord. What made them so successful? How was all hands on deck important for them? Let me give you two truths this morning about how a church can be all hands on deck together. How the people of God can be all hands on deck together. Truth number one, God's people should have one aim. God's people should have one aim. We should have one focus. There should be one thing that consumes our minds and our hearts and our purpose as a family of God. There should be one aim that we have in common. Look with me at the text. I'll show you what I mean. If you were uh, to survey this text, you, you will find uh, several truths here that are helpful for us to see. We can see that in this text that the people came from all over the place and they were kind of a ragtag group of Israelites building this wall. But they had one aim in mind, and that aim was simply this, the glory of God. They didn't care much about what the project was, although the wall was important. They cared about listening to Nehemiah and making sure God's name was not run through the mud. Let me show you what I mean. Look at chapter 1, verse 4. Let me show you chapter 1, verse 4. This is when Nehemiah gets the word that the wall is in shambles. Listen to how he responds. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And so Nehemiah gets this news that the wall is down and it is sad to him. It breaks his heart that the wall of God is not standing where it should be. Now look at chapter 2, verse 3. He says to the king when he's making his request, I said to the king, let the king live forever. Why should not my face be sad when the city, the place of my father's graves, lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? And then the king said to me in verse 4, what are you requesting? He has told the king why he's sad. The walls are down. The city is destroyed. But now I want you to join me in the end of chapter 2. Look at verse 17 and 18 and we'll make our point here. In verse 17 and 18 of chapter 2. He has surveyed the wall now. He's there. He's gathered up the leaders of Israel. And this is what he says to them. Then I said to them, You see the trouble we are now in in Jerusalem. How it lies in ruins with its gates burned. Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem. Here it is now. Hold to this sentence. That we may no longer be suffering derision. Now verse 18 says, And I told them of the hand of God that was upon me and for good, and also of the king. And they said, Let us rise up and build the wall. Now you'll notice with me the pattern of what's happened. The pattern is what's happened is that Nehemiah has understood that the wall being torn down is about the glory of God, the goodness of God, the outreach of God. How will the nations, how will the pagans hear about God if God's own church, his own family, his own people are in shambles? How will they witness if they're not pulled together working? So the wall becomes a place of derision, of embarrassment of bringing down the glory of God. And so what Nehemiah does is he rallies the people together and he says, here's why we need this wall. Because God deserves the glory. 
Because people need to hear of the goodness of God. They need to hear of the steadfast love of the God of Abraham and Isaac and Moses and David. They need to know of the God who rescues people, the God who hears prayers, the God who is the creator of all things, the righteous judge, the God who will send the Messiah to save the world. People need to know of this God. And so he rallies the troop, not around the wall. He doesn't say we need this wall so we won't be attacked. He doesn't say we need this wall so we'll have better economy. He doesn't say we need this wall so we'll be the envy of everybody else in the neighborhood. He says we need this wall because we're an embarrassment to the Lord. He pulls their heart into one focus. He pulls their heart into one aim. He says the heart of the people of God should be the glory of the King. It sounds a lot like Jesus. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done. Nehemiah pulls them in and says, we've got to have one aim. We've got to have our heart focused on one thing. We need to send our heart focused on the glory of God. Notice with me in verse 1, who's mentioned first in this list of who works. In chapter 1 of verse 3, or excuse me, chapter 3 of verse 1. Then Elishab, the high priest, rose up with his brothers, the priest, and built the sheep gate. Now, I don't think it's by accident that the first person listed is the priest. I think it's on purpose that Nehemiah would put the priest first, not because the priest deserves honor of some sort, not because the priest is better than anyone else. I think it's Nehemiah's way of reminding the people that the priest has been preaching the glory of God, and when it came time to display and work for the glory of God, the priest led them to the work of the wall. That the priest knew that the word of the Lord should be there. That the glory of God should be there. This is not far from Peter in the New Testament. Excuse me, Paul in the New Testament who would say, follow me as I follow God. Let's make much of God together. Let's make much of the glory of God in the kingdom. And so we have in this text this idea that they had one aim in their heart. To make much of God. To make much of God. To speak about God. They were living for something greater than them Selves. You ever had to do something that your heart wasn't really in? You ever had to be, don't start confessing out loud, by the way. You had to be a part of something that your heart wasn't really in, that your heart wasn't really there, that you, you really didn't care about it, but you had to, it's hard to get motivated. You drag your feet, your leg, doesn't get your best effort because your heart's just not in it. Can, can I give you an example from my life? Online school, my heart ain't in it. I, my heart's not in it. It's an all-hands-on-deck moment in my house. We call in one grandmother for science. We call in another granddaddy for math. We're calling other teachers for help. We're using YouTube videos to try to figure it out. My heart is not in it. But I know I want my kids to read and write, get a job, and get out. <laughs> it's hard when your heart's not in it. It's not there. I remember one of my favorite places to eat when... We were in Talladega living there working at camp. There's not many places to choose from in Talladega, but they opened a fresh subway, you know, eat fresh all the time. You can walk in, they'll hand you a foot-long sandwich. God bless America, right? I loved going to Subway. I had a little girl working there. We began to try to invite her to church, work on her single mom. She had had a hard time. And I remember going in. I won't tell you her name. It would be embarrassing. But I remember walking in to say to her, and I'll call her Kim for this story. I would say, uh, Kim, what's your favorite sandwich? I don't know. Well, Kim, which, which Subway should I eat? I hear they got a new uh, flavor out. Which one should I have eaten there so much at this point? I knew all the sauces and all the meats and all the things. Kim, what's your... I don't know. I don't know. I said, Kim, which one's your favorite? You know what she told me? I don't eat this garbage. <laughs> Her heart wasn't really in what she was doing. Her heart was not really there. It was not part of... And you could tell in the way that she 
did her job. Brothers and sisters, too often the work of the kingdom, the work of the church, there's not enough Christians that have their heart in it. There's not enough Christians that are passionate about the glory of God, the kingdom of God, the goodness of God. You want to know why Nehemiah was able to rally together a ragtag nation of unskilled labor to build a wall in 52 days? Because they had a passionate heart for the glory of God. They had one aim, one focus, one thought that consumed their mind, and they went after it with all that they had. You see, Nehemiah set in front of them the glory of God. For you and me, we need something to live for bigger than ourselves. We need something that will consume our heart and our mind. We need something that will help us put aside our differences and work with one aim and one heart and one thing. And that's simply this, brothers and sisters, as those of us who live under the New Testament covenant, the glory and the aim of our heart should be the glory of God through proclaiming the Son of God. The King of kings. Let us for just a moment have our heart turned to the Lord Jesus. Let me remind you why the Lord Jesus should be the aim of your heart. Let me remind you why the glory of God should be all that you focus on. Let me remind you why the church should rally around the idea that our sole aim and our sole heart's purpose is to proclaim Jesus for the glory of God. Let me remind you of Christ. Let me remind you of how through that sheep gate He carried that cross out to Golgotha. Let me remind you how in all of His perfection, how He never sinned and never broke fellowship with God, yet the Bible says He became the curse for us and our sins were laid on His shoulders. Let me remind you that He climbed up on that cross willingly, that they did not place Him there because they were stronger than Him or smarter than Him or wiser than Him. He was placed on that cross because He willingly laid down His life. Let me remind you of the nails that pounded through his hands and wrists and through his feet. Let me remind you of the thorns that were shoved on his head as blood poured down. Let me remind you of his back that was mutilated by whips and laid against that rough, rugged cross. Let me remind you as he hung there, suffering in the pool of his own blood, filling his lungs. Let me remind you that he walked to that cross willingly for you and for me. And let me remind you of this. Not only was the pain horrific, but the fact that he was innocent and hung there against his own guilt because he was not guilty. Let me remind you that the sky grew black, that the Father's wrath was poured out on your sin and my sin and laid on the eternal Son of God. Let me remind you in that moment he screamed with all of his might, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, my God, my God. Let me remind you that he drew his last breath and said, it is finished for you and for me. Let me remind you that they pulled his dead body from that cross and they wrapped it quickly because the Sabbath was coming. He had no formal funeral. They tossed him into a borrowed grave. They rolled the stone shut and they went in darkness and in mourning for days. Let me remind you the God of all creation took on flesh in order to be buried in the tomb that you and I deserved. Let me remind you let me remind you that, oh, brothers and sisters, death has a hold on us that we cannot shake or break. We are not able to overcome or undo. But let me remind you that after three days, Jesus broke that curse. That we were subject to the fear of death. 
And yet through death, Christ has defeated the very weapon of Satan. And now we live forever. Let me remind you that in Jesus Christ, there is therefore now no condemnation for those that are in Him. Let me remind you that we are now citizens of heaven and from it we await a Savior who will return and transform our lowly bodies into bodies like Him. Let me remind you that there is coming a day where the dead in Christ shall rise first and those who are left behind shall meet them in the air and we will be with the Lord forever. Let me remind you that there is coming a day where we will be in that place where every tear shall be wiped away and death will be no more. Brothers and sisters, we are not Nehemiah staring at a city to be built. We are saved people staring at a Christ to be glorified. Let our heart be aimed at the glory of God. When we aim our heart at the glory of God, we stop fighting over foolish things. When we aim our heart at the glory of God, we don't let race or politics get in the way. When we aim our heart at the glory of God, we don't squabble over COVID protocol. We share the Jesus with people. When we aim our heart at the glory of God, we're not arm twisted to volunteer in the nursery. We give ourselves to the glory of the kingdom. We're not arm twisted to give our tithes and offerings. We give willingly for the aim and the glory of the kingdom. When we aim for the glory of God, we will serve and do and work wherever the glory needs us to work wherever the kingdom places us. They had one aim in their heart. The glory of God. Let me show you a second truth about working together for the kingdom. Not only did God's people uh, excuse me, let me finish with this. I, I think this verse will help you sum up what I just said. First Corinthians 5 and 9. The Apostle Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 5 and 9. We make it our aim to please Him. I would encourage you to write that down, circle it, look it up. Make that be your mantra for the week. Lord, let me have an aim to please you this week. I want to please you. I want to I serve you in whatever way I can. Second truth from this passage of history, this recording of names, this, this idea that, that, that God used this, these people to build this wall, this feat that should never have been accomplished by this group of people in that amount of time would be simply this, and I'll give you the second point, and, and you're going to smile at this. There's only two points this morning. Uh, <clears throat> so here it is. God's people should work in one accord. Not only should our hearts be aimed in one direction, but our hands should be working in one accord. We should do it together. I want to survey the text with you for just a moment. We won't spend too much time, uh, again, butchering names, but I, I want you to see a couple of things that we find from the text that are helpful for us uh, this morning. Uh, and that's simply this. We find uh, that, that in this chapter, when you survey it, here, here's what you're going to find. You're going to find a couple things. First, you're going to find everybody worked. You're going to find everybody worked. Now, there's one exception. We'll get to it in just a moment. But everybody worked. Just take your eyes with me. Let's survey the text. In verse 1, the priests are working. Right? The priests are working. If you go down to verse 5, it says, And next to them, the Tekoites are working. The Tekoites were from Tekoa. You may remember that if you've ever studied the book of Amos. Amos was a shepherd from Tekoa. The Tekoites were shepherds. So we have priests and shepherds working on the wall. Go over with me, if you will, to verse 7. It says in verse 7 that Gibeon and Misaph were seated in the governor's seat of the providence. Now we have rulers involved, governors involved, sections, people in charge. Look at verse 8. 
Next to them, Uzel, the son of Hariah, the goldsmiths repaired the wall. Now we have goldsmiths, iron workers, people who work in the, in the hot labor. Look, look with me a little further in verse 8. It says, one of the perfumers worked on the wall. The people who made spices. This would be our essential oil folks for those of you that want to know. The people who made spices and oils worked on the wall. Look down in verse 9. It says in verse 9, the son of her ruler of half the district. Now we've got a ruler over a certain section working on the wall. Look down in verse 12. It says in verse 12, the ruler of half the district of Jerusalem, the very last part of verse 12, repaired he and his daughters. There's women pitching into this project. There's nobody left out. They're all involved in this. Now look over at the very last verse. The very last verse says this. And between the upper chamber of the corner and the sheep gate, now we're back where we started. They, they went counterclockwise in this chapter around the wall from gate to gate, section to section. That's, that's how you can lay it out if you're thinking about it. So verse 1, from the sheep gate this way, and then verse, the last verse, back around to the sheep gate. But look what it says. The, gate, the sheep gate, the goldsmiths, and the merchants repaired the wall. So we've got iron workers, perfumers, we've got governors, rulers, priests, women, shepherds. And in fact, when you read the text, you'll find that some of the men came from Jericho, some were inside the city. You've got city folk and country folk coming together to build this wall. All of them pitched in. Everybody put their hands to the plow. No one thought that they shouldn't do their part. Well, except for one exception, and again, we'll get to that in a moment. But everybody worked. Everybody worked. No one said, well, I'll let the, the rich people take care of it. I'll let the poor people handle it. I'll, I'll let those who have more time step in and serve. Well, I'm just too busy. I, I won't be able to do my part. I, I can't serve. I don't really like children. I'm not keeping the nursery. I, I don't care much about food. I'm not going to help serve the food on Wednesday night. I, I really don't need to be in the choir. They've got plenty of people up there. Everybody found a spot and served. Not only did everybody work, everybody sacrificed. Everybody sacrificed. Do you understand that for 52 days they left their jobs? For 52 days they stopped making perfumes. For 52 days they let their sheep wander in the pasture. For 52 days they walked away from the day-to-day -day ruling and governing and they worked on the wall. For 52 days. 52 days they laid bricks and mortar. 52 days they carried straw to make the mix. 52 days they worked together to do this. They laid aside their personal income, their personal time. They laid aside what they had as the priority of their life in order to sacrifice for the work. When the church comes together in one accord, everybody works and everybody sacrifices. Everybody is involved. We find this in the text. They laid aside their opinions and their preferences. They laid aside their personal desires and wants, and they did what was best for the community. Everybody followed as well. This feat is one of, usually when you study the book of Nehemiah, it's usually about leadership. There's a lot of leadership books written about Nehemiah. Uh, there's a lot of books out there that, that model the leadership of Nehemiah, and rightly so. Nehemiah sought the Lord, he prayed, he wanted the glory of God, he organized. Nehemiah was a great example of a Christian leader. But you can also read the book of Nehemiah and realize it's a pretty good example of Christian following. It's a pretty good example of doing your part. I mean, think about it. When you read this chapter... They have sections and walls. We don't read anywhere in there where somebody raised their hand and say, I don't want this section, I want their section. We don't read anybody in there where they say, well, that team over there has got more bricks than us. We're having to haul more from the creek. We don't read anywhere in there where somebody stopped the work to tell Nehemiah how he should do it differently. 
We don't read anywhere in there where they had to have regular committee meetings to figure it out. Well, what we see is everybody had their spot. They had their lane. They followed the organization, the, the massive work of the supply chain that Nehemiah set together, and they did their part. One of the gates is called the sheep gate. One of them is called the, the fish gate. One of them is called the dung gate. You know what goes out the dung gate? I could imagine somebody would say, you, you know what, I'd like to work on the other end of the city. The wind's blowing pretty strong right here. But they didn't. Everybody worked. Everybody sacrificed. And everybody followed. They stayed in their lane. They did what was asked of them. Because they saw the big picture. They valued their part. Let me give you just a real life example. Right now, there are two Rachels back there working with a bunch of children that thankfully are not going home with me. You know, because they're doing that, we're able to do this with a little more peace. Because they're doing that, we're, we're able to, to sit through a sermon and, and I can preach as long as I want because there's no kids in here. Thank you for not uh, throwing things at me. But they're also teaching those children about the Lord. They're also instructing them in a way that they can learn. I, I've never once heard either one of those ladies say, you know what, I really wish I could preach. I really wish I could do that or this. They said, I, I'll serve in that role. In a few minutes, we're going to dismiss and go to Sunday school, and there'll be teachers all over this campus teaching in their class, doing their part. Uh, some of you will be in that class, and your job is to take the role or keep up with the prayer sheet. Your job is to make sure the coffee's ready. Can't have church without coffee. That's the 11th commandment. Everybody's got a part to play, a, a lane to walk in. But here's the beauty of it. When everybody in the church, with one aim, in one accord, does their part, the king gets the glory. The wall gets built in 52 days. This miraculous event takes place. In fact, we'll learn in the next few weeks that it was such a miraculous event that the enemies around them were blown away at how fast it was working. They were surprised at how this group of people did Why? Because everybody did their part in their lane. Everybody worked. Everybody sacrificed. Everybody followed. Unselfish, unified, eager, full of enthusiasm. As Paul would tell us in 1 Corinthians 12 through 14, one body and each part doing theirs. But I want to draw your attention to one verse this morning before we close, and that's this. Look at verse 5. And next to them, the Tekoites, the people from Tekoa, the shepherds, repaired. But their nobles would not stoop to serve their Lord. The Hebrew here literally means they wouldn't bear their shoulder to the work. This verse is interesting because when you read this chapter, there is not another verse like it. It sticks out like a sore thumb. Every verse in this chapter, they helped, they built, they worked, they did this, they did that. Some, it even says, did it uh, with zealous effort. Some, the Tekoites, actually worked on two sections of the wall. They went above and beyond. So when you read chapter 5, it is this giant red light to say, wait a minute. This doesn't matter. One of these is not like the other, as we would say. And it says they would not stoop, they would not bear down, they would not lower themselves to put their shoulder 
to the work, brothers and sisters, one of the greatest hindrances to the kingdom work of the church is pride. It's pride. I shouldn't have to do that. I've done that before. It's somebody else's turn. I've earned the right to step away from that. Somebody else can cover that. We give enough that I don't have to go on that mission trip or be a part of that thing. Pride will keep us from stooping down, which is exactly the opposite of the Lord we claim to give the glory. For our Lord said, I came to serve, not to be served. For our Lord put on a towel and washed the feet of disciples just hours before He gave His life for them. Our Lord tells us that to be prideful is to fall. To want to be first is to be last. Brothers and sisters, there is no place in the kingdom work for pride, for selfishness, for a desire to see your way or your opinion or, or your idea to be the priority of the church but to work in one accord, to find your lane, to follow your spot, to fill your role. Let me give you just one example. I'm going to ask because it was said today. Can I just ask you a question? Don't answer out loud. What's keeping you from volunteering in the nursery? What's stopping you from helping? You, you don't have the ability to take out a diaper garbage bag? You can't roll out a toy? You can't help read the Bible to children? If you would say that's beneath me or for someone else, or God forbid you say that's for women only, brothers or sister, that's pride. That's pride. That's an example of pride. Now, oh, you better sign up after the service, right? What I'm asking you is, is when there is a need in the church, why don't you feel it? What's stopping you from serving? I hope it's not pride. I hope it's not thinking you're too good for that section of the wall. For the glory of the King says that all in one accord with one aim work together. Now, I'm reminded of the old man who was sitting with his friend on the porch swing. And they were enjoying a glass of sweet tea when his wife came out and began to chop wood for the stove. The old man looked at his friend and said, I, I just, I'm cut to the heart. I can't bear to see a woman work like that. Let's go inside. The humorist Jerome K. Jerome from Britain would write it this way. He would say, I like work. It's fascinating to me. I can sit and look at it for hours. Brothers and sisters, chapter 3 is about going to work. What are you doing? How are you serving? How are you sacrificing? What role are you playing? What part are you doing? How is your aim for the glory of God? You might say, well, pastor, I've got too much time. My family has too many demands. Our finances are too tight. My calendar's too full. Listen to me. Listen carefully. The one aim of the people of God should be the glory of God. And the one place where the glory of God is meant to work the best and the most is in the family of God. One aim, one accord. Where's your aim? How's your work? And the Bible would say it this way. Paul would write in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 58, these words. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. It's for the glory of the King. Would you pray with me, Father? We ask you this morning to examine our hearts. This is clearly a message about obeying you. So Lord, help us.
Father, there are some under the sound of my voice that, man, they are passionate about your glory and they are always serving and volunteering. And Lord, I pray today as as some of the words that I have said, I, I pray they would not hear them as judgment, but as encouragement. Lord, I'm thankful for the many hands that make up this body, that serve in many ways. Lord God, thank you that that there are many in our body of faith that, that see the goal as working together for your glory. Father, there are some under the sound of my voice that uh, they've been sitting long enough. They've been taking but not giving. They've not seen your glory worthy of working hard and aiming for your goodness. And they've allowed the schedule of their family, their life, their finances to pull them away from the work of your kingdom. God, I pray you would just convict them, Lord. Show them where they need to be corrected. Father, remind them that we do not want to be as those in verse 5 who were unwilling to put our shoulder to the work. Father, I just imagine what your church could do here and around the world. If every believer, every follower who fell in love with Jesus, who understands what Christ has done, sought to make it an aim to bring Him glory, to do the work of the kingdom. God, help us. Your heads are bowed and your eyes are closed. In just a moment, I'm going to say amen. We're going to sing together. Maybe you want to come to this altar and just say, Lord Jesus, help me know where I should serve. Lord, use me. i got one life. I want to use it for you. Maybe you want to come take me by the hand and say, Pastor, at the beginning of the sermon and in the middle of the sermon, you talked about Jesus and His sacrifice and His death, burial, and resurrection. And, and I've never given my heart to Christ. I've never been captivated by the Savior. I want to do that today. Maybe you're here this morning and you say, you know what, I need to put my hand to the work and I need to be a part of a local church to do that. I want to plant my feet here at the the church of Elkdale, the people of Elkdale. I, I want to work here. Maybe you're from a different church and this sermon has encouraged you to go back and roll up your sleeves and work. Maybe this morning you know of a brother or sister in your Sunday school class or in your neighborhood that they've fallen away from serving the Lord. And you know it's dangerous and not good for them. And you want to pray for them. Whatever the case may be, I, I pray this morning. Your heart will be aimed at the glory of God and your hand will be in one accord working for His kingdom. Father, bless our time of response, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.